Well, good morning, church. Thank you all for joining us online today. Uh, today, I want to start out by telling you a story about a family vacation we took many years ago to Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. Uh, we took that vacation with my mother-in-law, Mama Jean, my sister-in-law, Pam, her son, Jason, my wife, Cheryl, and myself, and uh, my two sons, David and Dustin. Uh, Cheryl had uh, uh, checked online to see what hotel we might book in, in Pigeon Forge, and she pulled up this one hotel. It was called the Grand Hotel. It was a beautiful hotel. The pictures were amazing. And it was also a conference center where the gospel music convention was held every year. So there were some big name music stars that stayed there and played there. Um, and it had this beautiful five-story cascading waterfall in the front lobby. It had opulent decorations. The rooms were spacious, clean, decorated to the hilt. So my wife booked uh, three rooms at the Grand Hotel. Well, we uh, worked uh, into the afternoon on a Friday. We took off. Um, we got down there about 9 o'clock that evening. We were worn out from the drive, anxious to get into our hotel room. Well, we got our luggage. We headed into the hotel lobby. We walked into the lobby, and the first thing that hit you was this putrid smell. It was horrible. It was from the waterfall that was not working. It had a pool of dirty, stagnant, stinking water at the base of the uh, waterfall, um, full of papers and trash and everything else. We asked the people... Uh, Behind the desk uh, about the waterfall, they said it was broken, and we all were thinking, brilliant deduction, Sherlock. We could have figured that out. But they gave us the keys to our room. We went to get on the elevator. The elevator was broken, so we had to take the stairs up. And somewhere along the way, there were many stairs, somewhere along the way, uh, one of us screamed. I'm not sure who it was, because there was what appeared to be a puddle of blood on the stairway. I'm not talking a few drops. I'm thinking a puddle of blood. It was like something that needed a uh, crime scene tape around it. When we made it to our room, we opened the door. We were speechless, not in a good way. The room was in shambles. Sheets were piled over in the corner. Uh, there was a pizza box with old, dried-up, uneaten pizza on the table. The bathrooms were filthy with trash cans and toilets filled with whatever the past tenants left. You can use your imagination. There was hair in the sink, hair in the shower. There were spiders running across the room. There were stains and rips in the carpet, torn curtains. It wasn't a hotel room. It was a disaster zone. Well, I went over to Mama Jean's room and Pam's room to check their room out. Pretty much the same. It was disgusting. We went down to the lobby. They wouldn't refund our money for the night. So we slept on the top of the covers with our clothes and our shoes on. We didn't dare want to see what was under those bedspreads. Anyway, years later, CBS did a story about the fil filthiest hotel in America. And guess what? It was the Grand Hotel in Pigeon Forge. TripAdvisor actually named it the dirtiest hotel in America. One reviewer on TripAdvisor, he even wrote this about their stay. He says, if you're looking for a hotel with chewing tobacco spit oozing down the halls and corridors, spiders active, actively making webs in every corner of your room, Carpeting so greasy and dirty you wouldn't want to sit your luggage down, let alone walk around barefoot. Dingy bed sheets and towels as rough and thin as sandpaper. And a room so putrid and smelly it causes a gag reflex when you walk in. By all means, stay at the Grand Hotel. The hotel finally closed in 2012. They tore it down a couple of years later. But I said all that to say that hotel once boasted a reputation 
of being a fancy upscale hotel, but ended up being a dead shell of memories from the past. A dead shell of memories from the past. I learned something about that whole experience, though. Reputation is one thing. Reality is another. Did you catch that? Reputation is one thing. Reality is another. I'll look at that more in just a minute. We're still in our sermon series where we're looking at the seven churches in the book of Revelation. These churches were just as relevant to what we go through today as they were 2,000 years ago. Today we're coming to the fifth church on the mail route. It's the church at Sardis. And to set this up, the town of Sardis was one of the richest and most powerful cities in the world. There was a man named Croesus who lived there who was thought to be the richest man in the world. The Greeks called him Midas. But let me start reading in Revelation 3, verse 1. It says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Remember a few weeks ago in our series, we discussed how the angel of the church actually means a messenger, actually means the pastor. So these letters were to be given to the pastors of each church. And when it says these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God, it's actually making a reference to the Holy Spirit. It's not talking about seven different spirits, but actually the Holy Spirit. The number seven uh, is used in the Bible to, as a, sig- a symbol of perfection and completion. But think about the series that we've been in so far. With all the other churches, when Jesus starts talking to them, the first thing he does is start out with some compliments. He encourages them of what they're doing right, and then he moves on into some correction. It's like he's saying, hey, church, hey, you're doing some good things over there. You're doing some real good things uh, over there. I like what you're doing here. But I want to point out some things that you're not doing so well. Sardis is the first church that he doesn't give them any compliments. None, none, not one. And Jesus wastes no time in going right into a confrontation with them. I want to point out a few things that we can learn from this church in Sardis. If you're taking notes, the first point I want to bring up is beware of becoming religious instead of relational. Beware of becoming religious instead of relational. Jesus goes on and he says, I know your deeds. You may not remember this, but this is the fifth time he says this. He said it in every letter. Maybe we ought to be paying attention because he knows everything that we do. He knows that if we're really living our lives for him or if we're just giving lip service to him, he knows the difference. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. The truth is a half-hearted effort doesn't fool God, never fools God, because Jesus is saying, I know about everything that you're doing. The believers in Sardis, without a doubt, were apparently very busy people. But religious busyness doesn't necessarily mean life. Religious busyness doesn't mean that they had a church that was alive. With that said, anyone ever see a chicken get its head cut off? I know it's a gross thought, but that chicken, when it gets its head cut off, can run around the barnyard until it finally keels over. What's that tell you? Two things. First of all, A thing can look alive and yet be dead. And secondly, a thing can be dead and not even know it. I think that was the problem with this church in Sardis. It was dead, didn't have a clue. It was dead, didn't even realize it. In all the previous letters, as I mentioned to the churches, Jesus starts out complimenting them on all that they were doing right, and then he gets on to them on what they're not doing right in some correction, words of correction. But not this church. Not Sardis. Jesus could literally find nothing to commend this church. 
Matter of fact, he says, you have a reputation of being alive. A reputation of being alive. Church, I think we have to stop here, step back, and be very careful because the practice alone of a religion, the practice of religion can look very much like the real thing. Oh, you can come to church every Sunday. You can serve on a million committees. You can look like you're doing the real thing. You can even convince yourself and others that you are the real thing and still not have a real living faith. Sardis had a great reputation as a church. I'm sure they had an awesome building. I'm sure they had tons of people who attended the church services. Fantastic programs, probably top-notch worship. All the things that when you saw them from the outside made you think, wow, what a church. This church is on fire for God. Look how they are prospering. Well, God says, yeah, that's your reputation. But I know the truth. You're not alive, you're dead. That takes me back to the point I made a few minutes ago. Reputation is one thing. Reality is another. Reputation, when it comes down to it, really does not matter. I mean, it doesn't matter what other, think, other people think about your congregation. What matters is what Jesus thinks about your congregation. In my study time, I came across this interesting fact about the North Star. Astronomers tell us that the light from the North Star takes actually 33 years to reach the Earth. It's so far away, it takes 33 years for that light to reach the Earth. So that's telling us that the light that we're seeing from the North Star actually shone 33 years ago. So think about this. It's possible for that star to fall from the sky, to plunder into total darkness 33 years ago, and yet for us to still see its light today. It could be that that star is a dead star, shining by the light of a brilliant distant past. That was the church in Sardis. It was living off the glow of a past reputation that had now gone out. The church of Sardis still looked like it was alive. It looked like a healthy church on the outside. But Jesus, I believe he was saying, this church isn't alive. It's on life support. Let me interject something here. Getting involved, serving others, getting involved in a ministry, we're all called to do those things. But all of our religious activities are for a purpose. They should lead us to a personal and relational growth in Jesus. And if it doesn't, let me tell you something. You don't have a relationship. If it doesn't, you don't have a relationship. You've just got a religion. Big difference. So Jesus basically rebukes this church because they're all about religion. They're all about their outward appearance. You know, they were all about doing good works. Dotting some more I's, crossing some more T's. You know, if you go to church that's just full of beautiful and perfect people, I've got one word for you. Run. Think about this. Look at the person where you're at today. On your right, look at the person on your left. It's pretty obvious that we all aren't that beautiful. Amen? The point I'm making is we don't all, okay, none of us have it all together. But the person who's obsessed with religion and reputation, I'm guessing that they don't recognize Jesus for who he is, and they definitely don't see their need for a Savior. I thought about that, and I realized Back in the book of Matthew, it talks about a group of people who are all about following their rules, uh, all about their reputation. They were thought about as being some of the most faith-filled people out there. Their faith was alive, but actually they were dead on the inside. And even when Jesus, the Son of God, stood among them, and these guys were scholars when it comes to the Bible. They memorized the whole Old Testament. They had no idea who he was. We know them as the Pharisees. 
Jesus says this to these Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 25. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees? He says, you hypocrites. For you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, meaning their outward appearance. But inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. The Pharisees, they were giving off this appearance, and it was just an appearance of being devoted to God. But it was just an appearance. It was a facade because inside their spirits were actually dead. That's the big difference between religion and relationship. So what does this church do? Jesus actually gives them a way out, a way of recovery. Jesus starts with two powerful words in verse 2. He says, wake up, which brings me to my second point. Wake from your sleep. He says, wake up, church. This city of Sardis was on a high plateau. They thought they were invincible from their enemies because of their location. They thought it would be impossible for an enemy to overtake them. But not once, but twice. Invading armies scaled the heights during the night when they were sleeping, when they weren't paying attention and captured the city. So think about this. Christ's warning to wake up, I believe, had special meaning to this church in Sardis because they had already been caught sleeping by the enemy, and now the Lord is telling, him, telling them they're asleep again. I believe Jesus was saying, hey, you need to snap out of it. Pay attention, because you've been complacent, and you've been sleeping for far too long. With that said, how many times do we seem to be just going through our, the motions when we're serving God? You ever find yourself doing that? You just get up on a Sunday morning, you go to church, maybe you sing a few songs, maybe you even attend a Bible study or two but we end up doing it more out of habit than we do holiness. Jesus says, church, wake up. And do you ever feel like you're just checking off the boxes in your spiritual life, just doing the bare minimum? And what you're doing really doesn't have much meaning or much value to it? And really what you're doing is just more out of a routine that you've started? The problem with just uh, going through the motions is that sooner or later you're going to stop checking off those boxes in your spiritual life because you're going to fall away from God. You're going to lose your love for Jesus. Third thing that we can learn from the church of Sardis is follow through. Follow through. He says this, strengthen what remains and is about to die. This tells us there's still a little bit of hope for this church. They haven't totally flatlined yet. He says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. I think we would probably all agree that we're living in some pretty dark times, living in a pretty dark world. Imagine being out in the woods at night. No moonlight at all. Uh, no light out there. Everything's pitch black. All you have is a little lantern or a little flashlight. You're walking down this dark path. How far do you think you can see down that path? You think you can see a mile? You think you might see a half mile, a hundred yards? No. You can only see enough of that path to take your next step. The only problem is unless you're willing to take the next step, you're never going to get to the next step. Psalms 119 uh, verse 105 says this, Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. I believe with that said, God is calling every one of us to take a next step. The first steps that we take in our walk of faith are the same. Starts out with uh, salvation, accepting Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. And after you do that, it starts out with making a public confession of your faith through water baptism. 
After that, to be honest, I have no idea what he's asking you to do. Think about that. One of the most asked questions that I get asked as a pastor is, Pastor, what do you think God's will is for me right now? My answer is, take your next step. It's that thing that God might be asking you to do, wanting you to do. It might be that thing God's asking you to stop doing or that thing that God is asking you to start doing. Here's some good news and here's some bad news. The good news is, if you'll just take that next step, it'll lead to a breakthrough. Look what it says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to, who he, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. With that said, God wants to do something in and through every one of us that's far beyond our wildest imagination. And if you just go ahead and take that next step, it's going to lead to a breakthrough. It might not lead to a breakthrough right here. It might be two steps ahead. But if you don't take that next step, you're never going to get there. You're never going to get to that breakthrough. And here's the bad news. If you already know what that next step is supposed to be and you refuse to take it, you're stuck. And you might be stuck in that area of your life for the rest of your life. That's why I know there are people that can attend church for 15, 20 years and never change. I know people that have gone to church their whole life. And they're still the same greedy, ornery, crabby, mean people that they've always been. Yeah, they might be in church, but I guarantee you they're not following Christ because you can't follow Christ and stay the same. If you're genuinely following Christ, you can't stay the same. Some people say, well, that's just the way I am. Well, let's just say you broke your foot. Would you drag your foot around the rest of your life and somebody ask you what's wrong? You say, well, that's just the way I am. No, you would go out and get it fixed. So until we, make, until we take the next step that Jesus is asking us to take, we're stuck. Maybe there's some of you out there that God's dealing with your heart to go forgive someone. And maybe there's real genuine reason for you to be hurt. But Jesus is asking you to go forgive that person. And until you do what he says, you're stuck. You realize Jesus doesn't want us to be stuck. Jesus has so much more, so much more for our lives. But sometimes we get into these ruts where we cause ourselves to be stuck by refusing to follow him, to obey him. The fourth thing that we can learn from Sardis is remember the past. Remember the past. In fact, he starts out verse 3 with that word, remember. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Basically, Jesus is saying, go back to your past. Remember when we studied the church in Ephesus? They were the church that lost their first love, their love for God. Just like in marriages or relationships, they tend to break down if we stop doing what we did in the beginning. I know I was very attentive. When Cheryl and I got together, we started dating. I wanted to call her all the time. I wanted to see her all the time. I complimented her all the time. And she was worth, uh, worse. She couldn't keep her hands off of me. I'm just kidding there for sure. But we were both making a major effort to stay connected. That's my point. We were making a major effort to stay connected and keep that fire going. Remember how it was when you first got on fire for God, when you first met Jesus and invited Him into your heart. You wanted to tell everyone that you met about Jesus. You wanted to get into every Bible study you could to find out as much as you could. You looked for opportunities to serve people because you knew that Jesus served people. So let a few years go by and let me ask you, do you do that now? 
Do you do that now? Or have you closed your eyes to the mission that Jesus has set before you? You know, if that's happened, it's not the end of the world. Don't deny it. Just change your mindset and get with Jesus. Change your mindset, get with Jesus, spend some time, I mean quality time with Him. Spend some time, quiet time, time in silence with Him. Spend some real time in prayer. I'm not talking about getting out your want list. I'm talking about seeking Him in prayer and Bible reading. Seek His Word. I also encourage you to spend some time with other people that are passionate about Jesus because that's what will stir up your spirit. That's what will rekindle that fire for Jesus in your heart. So Jesus says, do what you did at first. Go back to that day. Remember that day. And the fifth and last thing that we can learn from Sardis is repent. Repentance is so powerful. Go back to uh, verse 3. It says, remember therefore what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. I think I said it last week. To repent means literally to change your mind. True repentance isn't just saying you're sorry. It means to stop going your direction and start going God's direction. True repentance is a complete surrender. And I believe the more we see God as glorious and holy, the more we're going to see sin for what it is. Sin is something to weep over, something to run from. And if we don't repent on our own, guess what? Sometimes God will allow us to go through some things that will bring some change that we need in our lives. Because most of us, unfortunately, don't change unless pain is involved. We don't pray until we get desperate. We don't seek God's face until we're in trouble. And we don't repent unless we run out of all other options. But to get to real revival in your spirit, it always has to start with repentance every time. But if you refuse to repent, look what it says in the second part of verse 3. Jesus says, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Remember, the city of Sardis had been overtaken twice by the Persians and by the Greek armies because they weren't paying attention. Now the church had fallen asleep again, and they were on the verge of being overtaken by God Himself. Think about this, church. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. We all need to be asking ourselves, am I ready? Are we ready? I mean, when you think about a thief, a thief doesn't give you any forewarning of when they're coming, when they're going to break in. He doesn't call you up and say, hey, I think I'm going to break into your house next Tuesday night. I'm going to loot your house next Tuesday. Nope, there's no warning. And like a thief who comes when you least expect him, Jesus is warning this congregation at Sardis saying, wake up or I'm going to come when you least expect it. And it's not going to be a good thing if you're not ready. If you knew a thing, if you knew a thief was coming to your house, you'd lock your doors, right? You'd lock your doors. You wouldn't leave your valuables out on the kitchen table in plain sight. No, you'd prepare beforehand. Just as it's true in the natural, it's true in the spiritual. When it comes to being prepared to meet Jesus when He does come. So real quickly, if you want to know if you're heading down a road to becoming spiritually dead, see if any of these things that I'm going to read to you fit your life. How about this one? You're not passionate about Jesus. Or your faith has become a have-to thing instead of a want-to thing. Or maybe you're more concerned with other sin than dealing with your own sin. You rarely study the Bible with other people. You rarely pray except out of desperation. You're not generous. You believe all religions are equal ways to get to God. 
Maybe you start becoming more like the culture around you than like the Savior who saved you. You might find yourself disagreeing with Jesus and thinking you're right. If those fit your life, you might be heading toward being spiritually dead. Now let me give you a few things that mean you're being spiritually alive and growing in your faith. Worshiping God is a priority, not an option. You read your Bible. You strive to live a holy life. You bear spiritual fruit. You serve others and you recognize their needs. You give generously. You're actively sharing your faith. And you live a life of self-examination each and every day. And your faith is not built on a preacher, a teacher, a church, or a tradition, but your faith is built upon Jesus Christ. So my question is this to all of us today. As a church, are we awake and alive, or are we spiritually dead? If Jesus were to look down today, it would send a letter to Victory Church here in Camargo, what would he be telling us as individuals and as his church? Church, I don't want this church to just have a reputation of being alive. I want this church to genuinely be alive and being on fire for God. God still loved that church at Sardis. If he didn't, he wouldn't have written them this letter. So what I'm saying is wherever you are with your walk with God today, we need to be saying, Lord God, start with me right where I'm at. Do your work in me. Wake me up. Stir me up. Stir me to love you, stir me to, to serve you so that this world would see me and know that I truly belong to you. My prayer today is that God would wake every one of us up to keep us from ever being the church of the living dead and guide us to always be the church of the living Christ. Amen? Could you bow your hearts in prayer with me? Lord Jesus, call us out of our comfort zones. Take us to our next step. Show us what that next step might be and allow, help us to allow you to have your way in our hearts and in our lives. With every head bowed, every eye closed, I believe God is dealing with hearts through this message today. I believe he wants to deal with lives, with families. And I want you to ask Jesus right now, Jesus, what's my next step? And if you feel like Jesus has already spoken to you, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that it's going to be easy. It could be the hardest thing you've ever done to take that next step. But if God's calling you to take that next step, He's calling you to take that next step. I want to pray for you. And right where you're at today, if you're ready to take that next step, I just want you to slip up your hand right where you're at. I want to pray for you. God's watching. We don't need to worry about our reputation. Let's worry about His reputation. So would you pray? Father God, I just thank you that you have a next step for every one of us to take. And Father, for those that have raised their hands today, give them the courage and the strength to take their next step. Help them, Lord God, to trust you and to allow you to guide them every step of the way. And for those that aren't sure what that next step is yet, I pray you'd help them to see it and understand it. And Father, help them to step out and obey your word and to do it by faith. Father, I pray we here at Victory Church would always be a church that is truly genuinely alive, not just with a reputation, but genuinely alive and serving you every day to change our world for good and for your glory. In the mighty name of Jesus, your Son, I pray. And everyone said, 
Amen. God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful week.